Shalom, and welcome to Israel Policy Pod. I'm your host, Evan Gottesman. Yesterday, we hosted a special event for our IPF Atid Young Professionals community, examining the 2020 American presidential election through the lens of U.S.-Israel ties and the relationship between Israel and the American Jewish community. Now, for today's episode of the podcast, we're bringing you a recording of that program, which featured Jacob Kornblue, Allison Kaplan-Summer, and Tabby Raphael. Enjoy the program, and until our next episode, stay safe, stay healthy, and we'll see you soon. Hi, everyone. Thanks so much for joining us today. My name is Shani Reichman. I'm the Deputy Director of IPF Fatid which is the Young Professionals Network of Israel Policy Forum. Israel Policy Forum is a nonpartisan organization that's dedicated to advancing advancing support for a two-state solution that's consistent with Israel's security. We are very lucky to be joined today by three prominent Jewish journalists who have pretty unique insights into the current state and future of our communities. Let's start with Allison Kaplan-Summer, an American-born Israeli who covers politics and communal affairs for the Haaretz paper. She writes on the stories that are shaping the U.S.-Israel and diaspora-Israel relationships and are informed by her experience as a member of both of those Jewish worlds. Tabi Raphael is a true diaspora and American success story. She fled post-revolutionary with her family in the late 80s and has since emerged leader in the L.A. Jewish community, writing on politics and her Jewish experience for the Jewish Journal and Los Angeles Magazine and Empowering Iranian Jews as a founder of the nonprofit 30 Years After. Jacob Kornblue of Jewish Insider is a veteran political reporter who's recently found himself on the front lines of unrest among his Orthodox community in New York. He is a fearless and honest voice, even in the face of violence from fellow Jews. This event is on the record and will be recorded and posted online for further sharing. I'm going to turn it over to Israel Policy Forum's Executive Director, David Halperin. Thank you, Shani. Uh, thanks, everybody, for joining. Uh, as Shani mentioned, I'm David Halperin, the Executive Director of Israel Policy Forum. Uh, I want to thank you all for joining this video call convened by IPF Atid, our program engaging young professionals through North, throughout North America. Uh, Israel Policy Forum is committed to a vision of a Jewish, democratic, and secure Israel, and a strong U.S.-Israel relationship regardless of who is in office in Washington. And I, I should make clear at the outset that as a nonprofit and nonpartisan organization, we do not endorse candidates for elected office. Uh, We do stand firmly against the rancor and distortions that too often color our political discourse today. And I know I speak for all of us at Israel Policy Forum when I say we certainly strongly endorse uh, what I thought was a a really remarkable statement issued this week by the Republican Jewish Coalition and the Jewish Democratic Council of America together in solidarity with Jacob uh, Jacob Kornblue, who we're fortunate to have as one of our guest speakers for this program. And I think Jacob's Courage has made him the target, uh, as Shani mentioned, of vicious incitement, harassment, and even physical attacks in recent days. But I think the fact that so many in the wider community from all sides have come together in support of Jacob is a testament to the great respect we all have for him as a, as a person uh, and as a damn good reporter. Uh, so thank you, Jacob, for joining us tonight, despite all that's been going on, especially in the past week. And I'm really looking forward to hearing from you today, as well as from Allison and Tabby, I'm sure today's conversation will be uh, a fascinating one uh, to analyze the, the, the wild weeks we have uh, ahead of us and beyond. So thank you all for joining us. Uh, I want to now turn it over to Brandon Ratner, 
a member of our IPFATID Washington DC steering committee uh, and an attorney at, at Covington and Burling who will be moderating today's discussion. Thanks again. Thank you so much, David. And uh, thank you for all of us and all of you participants here today that have um, decided to join us. We know that there's a lot of election programming going on uh, and we're gonna do our best to make this a good conversation. So with that in mind, I just wanna kind of say one thing first, um, both to our panelists and to all of the participants on the call, this is not meant to be a kind of conversation that answers the question, which candidate is best for the Jewish people? Um, it's also not a conversation that is going to uh, forget that the Jewish people have a lot of different parts, both in America and in the United States, both in America and in Israel. And um, we're going to do our best to kind of consider that nuance and, and communicate in a way that doesn't make either community feel like a monolith. Um, so thank you all again, and now we're going to just start with some questions for our panelists. And again, for the panelists, don't feel the need to um, answer every single question if you, you think it's already been covered by your colleagues. That just gives us time to, to speak to more. But I will start with a question um, for the broader group in general. And um, Allison, why don't you just go first, because you're the first one on my, my Zoom screen here. But uh, this event is focused on the relationship between Jews and Israel in the United States. So I'm kind of just curious how this current political moment um, has really kind of amplified and maybe exposed some of the differences and divides between those two communities. Right. So, you know, you talk about our two communities, my two communities, since I'm an American born and raised who now lives in Israel. Um, I feel like we've never been so far apart in some ways and yet understand each other in ways that we didn't uh, before. And let me explain, we are used to an age of being able to move back and forth. And for the first time, just think about it historically, maybe since the British mandate, Jews uh, cannot enter the Jewish state. Israel, because of COVID rules, have, uh, have not uh, permitted non-citizens to, uh, to enter Israel. So, you know, we're going for an, an undefined amount of time without birthright trips, without missions, without any kind of actual uh, back and forth. And at the same time, we are all caught up in our own health and political crises that are so specific to our countries that we have less bandwidth on both sides for relating to each other, to uh, Israel and the diaspora. Um, the flip side of that coin is that um, for the first time ever, maybe we're going through the exact same crisis. We're used to uh, diaspora Jews and Israeli Jews having very, very different kinds of problems. We're in a region in Israel with, uh, with you know, conflict uh, between our neighbors. And uh, American Jewry struggles with uh, being part of a diaspora, being a minority uh, in a majority country, church state issues. And we did, don't have a lot in common. But right now, uh, with the virus, we are sort of fighting the same war in completely uh, different countries. And I'll just final, uh, on a final note with a nod to what Jacob's going through in that our own ways we're fighting the same kind of intracommunal struggle between uh, the wider uh, in Israel, the secular majority and in uh, America, the non-Orthodox majority um, who are trying to play by the rules, the coronavirus rules and, and obey. And we're dealing with a small ultra-Orthodox minority for whom um, it's such a a struggle to adapt their uh, super communal way of life to the coronavirus situation. And uh, those tensions in both of our communities are being inflamed uh, in, in a big way.
Tabby, Jacob, do either one of you want to pop in? Um, I, first of all, it's an honor to be with uh, such amazing uh, folks. Uh, obviously, IPF Atid is just uh, an example of um, what any organization should thrive to be. Um, I would say uh, it's twofold because uh, there's so much similarities between what we are going through and what Israelis are going through. Uh, number one, everything is so politically charged. Uh, here we have an election in Israel. They are just um, tried to avoid another election, but they might go uh, to another election a week, uh, weeks after uh, we potentially um, solve our problems. So I think in, in, in that sense, uh, we are very similar. Those at the helm of government are being charged as not really taking the virus seriously. If it's in Israel, obviously the unity government that hasn't really tackled the problem in America where the Democrats are trying to seize power from a president who really didn't take the virus seriously and now is trying to mock it uh, because uh, he got a VIP treatment. Um, so what is uh, the clash, I think, is what the outcome would be past um, the virus. Once we try to have a vaccine, once we try to actually solve this, uh, bring down uh, the uh, infection rate, um, how is it going to look like? How is America going to look like? How is Israel going to look like? Uh, it seems that in while in Israel, once uh, they are past the peak and they actually bring down the virus, uh, things could settle uh, it could also um, escalate. I don't think so, Jake. Yeah, I'm saying it could. Uh, and uh, here in America, I think we start a new period where it's either transitioning into a new government where uh, at least at the top they are taking this virus very serious and would try to rebuild, uh, or if uh, Trump is re-elected, where we just enter in a new phase of what we have seen over the past four years. Jacob, I just want to follow up on that that question kind of quickly uh, before we get to Tabby and, and follow up on something Allison mentioned too. So you've, you've personally been experiencing the kind of inter-Jewish communal conflict uh, that, uh, you know, is kind of omnipresent right now um, in a really, really specific sense. But certainly, coronavirus aside, this election has been a moment where just tensions within the Jewish community um, have been kind of borne out for the world to see in a really meaningful way. So I, I just would love to hear you kind of explain that and where this question is coming from, if that's helpful, is it just seems like the Jewish people are getting politicized, right? Like you have different people trying to speak about Jews as a group, um, trying to quote unquote, give them deliverables in different policy arenas that are good for the Jews or bad for the Jews. So I'm just kind of wondering um, how, how you've seen the po politicization in general of the idea of Jewish peoplehood kind of play out in the context of this election. Uh, in the past, obviously, the Jews in America especially had this sort of a unique position where we were part of the political process. Obviously, uh, you know, we have prominent Jews in, in places of power, but the role that we played uh, in the past was of, you know, contributing something unique to the political process, 
uh, if it's in government, if it's in uh, uh, politics in general, in the media. Um, I think what's happened in recent years is on both sides, uh, both uh, Jews who support the Republican Party and a majority of Jews who identify with the Democratic Party are trying to lecture each other um, who is more uh, Jewish, who is actually sticking up for Jewish values. So when you have a, a, a Democratic Jew say, if you support President Trump, or if you support the Republican Party who have some fringe candidates on the slate, then you essentially are not sticking up for Jewish values. Uh, your vote doesn't matter when it comes to Jewish issues because you support the rhetoric of President Trump or going back to Charlottesville where you would uh, uh, assume, assumingly, uh, you know, agree with his uh, both sides' comments. And on the other side, you have uh, Republican Jews say, hey, Democrats, uh, Democratic Jews, you're not really loyal to the Jewish uh, nation. You're not really loyal to Israel. Why? Because you have a few progressive members in your party who criticize Israel and have engaged in the past in anti-Semitic tropes, or that they believe that Joe Biden's long-standing record on Israel, because he was part of the Obama administration and because he doesn't believe in certain uh, initiatives that the Trump administration is pushing towards, that that uh, is un-Jewish of those who identify with the Jewish people. So I think that has turned us into a, you know, a point of uh, where do we go from now? If any side wins, there will always be part of the Jewish community who says, we defeated you, and these are the Jewish values. Um, in contrary to you, you now stand aside, be in the opposition, and you know we are taking over right now with our real Jewish values, and, and, and vice versa, I guess. Thank you. Uh, Tabby, I want to throw this question to you. Um, we've been speaking about kind of the, the understanding of what it means to embody the Jewish experience and Jewish values. And I know that you have an experience that's kind of at the intersection of a lot of different uh, Jewish identities. So I just would love to hear um, kind of how this election is, is activating some of those different identities and how it's kind of making you and, and some of the folks in your community feel. Thank you. So first of all, thank you for having me. Um, it's always my honor to speak for IPF Atid. And, uh, you know, as, as someone who uh, escaped Iran after the revolution, um, that was decades ago. But sometimes I still cannot believe that I was born and raised in Tehran and get to speak to, you know, about uh, issues relating to Israel, the U.S., and the Jewish community. I mean, if that doesn't make me believe in God, nothing will right? It's not, moments like these are, are something I don't take for granted. Um, I also, I wanted to chime in a little bit about uh, the first question that you asked, but I'll tie in my response. So, um, look, you know, uh, for uh, 
non-Jewish Americans, Thanksgiving is always that holiday since 2016 now where you have a lot of these family rifts where you see a family member missing from a Thanksgiving table or you see these horrible fights because of that election or because of these political schisms in a family. When you're Jewish and part of my, you know, modern Orthodox uh, community in LA, that can happen every week, right? Which is every Friday night at least before the pandemic, and certainly now during the Chagim. And so I really have to remind myself that whereas many other Americans might experience these kinds of, this kind of infighting with friends and family, you know, once, twice a year when they get together, Jews and the Mishpacha get together a lot, at least before the pandemic. And in that sense, I think some of um, these schisms seem even uh, more heightened for all of us, right? Um, and that's very much the case for my community of Iranian American Jews. There's about 50 to 60,000 of us here in Southern California. Um, and of course, uh, elsewhere, like in uh, New York, uh, you know, Baltimore and so on, even in Atlanta, Canada, of course. And um, it's very interesting, you know, uh, I have to tell you, I didn't really understand the concept of Jewish infighting until I came to the U.S. In Iran and in the Middle in Middle Eastern communities outside of Israel, because it's Israel as a Jewish state has you know Jewish Israelis and uh, you know seven million opinions, no fourteen million. Um, and I came to the U.S. and I realized that Jews here not only, you know, vote differently, but the odds seem to be truly stacked against us towards a kind of unity. And um, Jews of the Middle East, again, outside of Israel, where everybody has, you know, can afford those freedoms and, and uh, those diverging opinions, we had so many existential threats and enemies and fanatics and anti-Semites around us that it wasn't difficult to be unified around matters, right? Certainly not about Israel and about other issues as well. And what I've learned having been for decades in the U.S. is that the division that the Jewish community has, painful as it is, is a mark of the blessing of having access to freedom of speech and freedom of thought, right? Freedom of the press. I will tell you, I read a piece today in the forward that discussed how many Israelis, you know, are, are in supporting President Trump. And stories like this, um, when they're read by a majority Jews, 70% of whom voted for, you know, Senator Clinton in 2016, you know, something that 80% of American Jews could vote for um, Vice President Biden in a few weeks. I don't know if stories like that are what we need and if they help exactly. And I'll tell you why. Um, I feel that at no other moment in Jewish history have the Jewish people outsourced their unity to leaders. And let me explain really what I mean. Um, Presidents come and go, administrations come and go, Israeli prime ministers come and go. I don't mean to dismiss any of what comes with that. As you've seen in the past few weeks, they can alter policy for decades to come, right? They can reverse policy that's been set in motion decades ago. But when I look at the stance of the Jewish community 
in the U.S. and Jewish Israelis today, I see people who are actively outsourcing their unity to leaders, leaders whom um, they don't feel in many cases represent them, you know? Um, a third of my family after having escaped Iran arrived in Israel. So a third of my family is still there. They're full on Israelis, you know, they're sabers, they serve, they're on reserve duty now. And they tell me everything that's happening, you know, according to their views in Israeli society. Some of them are in Tel Aviv. A third of my family is still in Iran. And though I have limited contact with them and phones are tapped and so on, um, they give me a sense of what's happening in the U.S. in in Israel, and then you have a third of our family here in the United States. And um, I believe that at no other moment in Jewish history have we been listening more to the media than we've been listening to each other. And it's fine; you have to read the media. You need to know what's going on. But if we're reading stories like I read today that. Many, many millions of Israelis are, you know, supporting President Trump. At, and however you feel about that. And if the average, let's say, progressive American Jew doesn't have access nor the interest to seek out Israelis, to speak with them, young and old, and to see why or how or who, then not only are we leaving that unity in the hands of leaders, we're leaving that unity or that schism also in the hands of sources like the media. I'm going to get into this a little bit later when I talk about the crucial need for dialogue. Um, but uh, I'll tell you, and, and, and this is, you know, Brandon, what, what you really wanted me to answer is um, Iranian American Jews uh, really represent a refugee and immigrant community that I believe progressive American Jews would find very hard to relate with. And that is, we are a community that's been in the Middle East for 2,700 years and uh, has lived under theocracy, fanaticism, um, anti-Semitism, Islamist revolutionary fervor for, with the 1979 revolution, right? Assassination of our most prominent Jewish community leaders. We are a community who for 41 years has basically been threatened with death. And in some cases, actually, you've had executions of community members for aligning with Israel, for even sending tzedakah to Israel, right? If they've been found out for that. We've also been a community that for 41 years has been told that America is the big Satan and, uh, you know, Israel is a little Satan. Of course, many of us, you know, tens of thousands of us were granted refugee asylum here, like my family and I in the U.S., I bring this up to say that sometimes we struggle with having a more nuanced approach to both domestic American policy and American policy Israel. You have to understand that when you fled from a country of Islamist theocratic, quote unquote, friendship with the enemies of God, which were the charges they brought up against one of our community leaders in 1979, was the first Jew to be executed. Um, he was a prominent businessman, was basically the equivalent of like a Malcolm Holmline in the U.S. When you've been denied in such a harsh, dangerous way, a relationship with Jews outside the world, with the U.S. and with Israel, and then you're redeemed in the United States or in Israel, you're confused. 
right? You don't know whether to have an unconditional, almost blind um, loyalty, affiliation, unquestioning of the U.S. and of Israeli policy. You don't know where the line is between disagreeing with Israeli leaders, but still being a fervent Zionist, right? A lot of that it is that first generation trauma and it's real trauma of not knowing exactly your place. And this is what I'll end with with this response. Sometimes the fact that refugee and immigrant communities, whether the recent ones arrived arriving in the US, whether uh, you know from the uh, po former Soviet Union, from places like Iran, and now most recently France, um, communities that have recently experienced violent anti-Semitism and really existential threats in the past couple of decades and have been redeemed in the U.S., not only do we find it a little bit harder to understand the average progressive American Jew who far, for whom domestic policy far outweighs anything foreign policy, um, this is really important we leave ourselves out of the conversation sometimes that the greater American Jewish community is having. And let me explain to you why. Because it's if it seems like all Iranian Jews, for example, are pro-Trump, which a very, um, very sort of a harsh article in the forward uh, a couple of weeks ago came out and basically asserted, you know, we're left out of that conversation. If it seems like communities like ours uh, don't have enough interaction or interest in American civic life or engagement, we're left out of the conversation, um, whether actively or, you know, through our own fault. So this is something we can explore a little bit later. But one of my jobs here is to ensure that Jews from the Middle East and North Africa are at that table to at least explain their point of view and listen to everyone else. Yeah, thank you. And I, and I do want to kind of um, expand on that about kind of how communities are, are thinking about and, and speaking with one another. So, um, Allison, this is specifically one for you. Um, you know, as someone who lives in Israel and kind of reports on it from the ground, I'm curious what uh, the view in Israel is of uh, the 2020 election and even more broadly, the kind of different paths um, the two American parties seem to be uh, going down as it relates to Israeli policy. Well, they're going down two very different paths, obviously. Um, you might not like the article in the forward talking about how much Israelis are supporting Trump. I don't know if I would call it as much outright supporting Trump, and there is a lot of strong support of Trump, but um, there's a lot of fear of a Biden victory and what the implications are for that. Um, Israelis have very much enjoyed the past three and a half years of Donald Trump's black and white, all or nothing, you're with me or you're against me worldview in which Israel has been put in the category of friend, ally, supporter. Um, he's got a very good rapport with uh, Prime Minister uh, Benjamin Netanyahu. We've had the recognition of the Jerusalem as Israel's capital, the moving of the embassy, the Golan Heights, most recently the UAE deal, the, um, the, the much-delayed uh, um, uh, deal of the century uh, uh, peace plan, which was very, very favorable towards Israel, the uh, cancellation of a lot of aid towards, uh, to, to the Palestinians, the, I mean, not even questioning if, uh, if the United States was going to support Israel in votes at the, at the United Nations. Um, 
not a peep out of the White House or the State Department when it comes to settlement building, uh, when it comes to any aspect of Israeli policy, which, let's face it, uh, Israel's government is on the right and is right-leaning. So um, it's been, you know, uh, as much as Trump has been a turbulent force um, in American society and American life, and one could argue in the world, for Israel, it's been a very comfortable place and a comfortable place to be. And it's, in a way, you know, uh, very advantageous to our prime minister, who, um, uh, as many people can see, an embattled political figure, um, hasn't been able to, uh, to get a solid government coalition to three elections in Israel, but what he's always been able to fall back on and campaign on is, you know, I have an American president who listens to me. I have a White House who, uh, who cares about Israel, and that's always been uh, something he could uh, he could rely on. But I have to say that even Israelis who are not on the right have found the Trump era to be very, very Israelis don't necessarily understand the nuances of intra-party American politics. Therefore, they don't make a big distinction between the fact that the Democrats have a moderate and a far left progressive wing. So in a way, the Democratic Party has been colored by the uh, views of a lot of the um, uh, the more far left-leaning members of the uh, of the party. And they've got a lot of people to remind them of that. Trump is always reminding them of that. And Israeli politicians uh, on the on the right who are aligned with the Republican Party are also, you know, coloring the Democratic Party with that brush. So even though you have a Biden campaign that is uh, is very moderate in Israel, you have a very favorable uh, position in the in the Democratic platform. That's not necessarily the broad message that that uh, that Israelis um, are getting. And so I think that there's definitely a fear of. Uh, a Biden victory will harken back to what Israelis consider the battle day, the sniping going on between uh, Barack Obama and uh, and Benjamin Netanyahu. Um, and my one caveat, you know, to, to put a balance on this, that obviously there are people on the left in Israel who who wanted Israel to be a force pulling Israel towards compromise with the Palestinians, and they haven't gotten that in the Trump era. They missed that, and they would very much like Joe Biden to uh, to win the presidency. And especially in the more, more sophisticated circles, when it comes to security, um, there are Israeli uh, experts, you know, ex-politicians and, and, and people at the top and, and leaders who understand that um, if the uh, United States is Israel's bulwark as Israel's ally, uh, Israel's credibility, reliability, and security relies on uh, United States' position in the world, and that position and that posture and that credibility taken a big hit, to take a hit with the presidency of Donald Trump, and ultimately the assertion that Donald Trump is good for Israel is not necessarily true. Great, thank you. Um, Jacob, I want to turn to you here and, and kind of drill down on a, a point that Allison brought up, which is, you know, the... You know, the the, the new approach of kind of the very, very progressive left in the United States. And, and here's the framing of this question. You know, as Tabby mentioned, about 70 to 80 percent of American Jews are reliable Democratic voters, and they kind of are expected to continue to be so, if for no other reason than um, among that crowd, Israel and relationship with Israel tends to be a low priority on their voting list. But you know, you are seeing um, a very 
difficult space for people that view themselves as liberal Zionists. And I'll, and I'll mention a column that you just wrote recently about AOC, uh, who is an avatar for a lot of energy on the left, not even kind of being willing to go to a Rabin memorial, which is kind of like the lowest hanging fruit of uh, progressive Zionism. And, you know, if you can't be kind of pro Rabin, like how can you even be pro Israel? So I'm really, I, I'd love for you to kind of, um, really explore that tension that American Jews are feeling um, and between being democratic voters and, and maybe folks that care about Israel and how you can see that kind of resolving um, in, in maybe a Biden administration. First of all, it's, it, again, to, to just keep repeating myself, everything is politically charged right now. And so whatever policy from either administration, if it will be from the Trump administration the past uh, three and a half years, or um, if there's a, a possible uh, Biden administration, um, the other side is going to claim that, you know, it's either um, that, um, uh, you know, the other side opposing the administration is opposing Israel or its policies. And so when you look at the Trump administration's uh, policy on Israel, there are a lot of uh, good aspects that uh, Democrats generally support. Uh, obviously, the deal of the century um, you know, wasn't uh, an ideal um, peace proposal, but it still had a mention of a two-state solution. It still draws a map which Prime Minister Netanyahu is still reluctant to sign off on. Uh, so that's something that uh, Democrats can accept. Same is with annexation, you know, that came uh, because of the UAE deal. That is something that Democrats can actually accept. Uh, but you also have certain proposals and certain uh, initiatives that the Trump administration has either proposed or has taken a lead on, uh, primarily the executive order on anti-Semitism on campus um, or withdrawing from the UN Human Rights Council, um, uh, stopping funds to the PLO uh, and to, uh, I mean, sorry, stopping funds to the Palestinian Authority and closing down the PLO mission in D.C., all of that puts, uh, you know, Democrats versus Republicans regardless. So if you are uh, a Jewish Democrat, you are going to oppose those measures, but also see it as if, if we are in power, we would lead on that. And therefore, those who criticize would see uh, if you're criticizing the administration, you're criticizing Israel. What I think uh, could happen um, in a possible uh, Biden administration is where we return to actually a traditional U.S. policy, something that was of both administrations, uh, the Bush administration, the Obama administration, um, at least in the first uh, seven and a half years until uh, the debate on the U.N. Security Council uh, came uh, to the table, going back to George H. Bush and Ronald Reagan, is where support for Israel is still around certain core values. It's still about defense, about military assistance. It's about supporting 
any peace um, mediation in the Middle East, if it's withdrawn from territory, uh, trying to press Israel to take certain measures to stop settlement ex expansion. And so that is when, you know, there might be tension, but you won't see that level of tension that is right now between progressives or even general Jewish Democrats who oppose certain measures of the Trump administration. And also uh, in, in Israel, uh, Prime Minister Netanyahu uh, did not have a good start off with the Obama administration and it continued for eight years. With Biden, at least on a personal level, uh, you still have uh, a, a, you know, some level of respect at least um, until now, we don't know you know, everything has changed. So we don't know who is going to take the lead, who is becoming Secretary of State, who is in the national security team. But it seems from, uh, as of now, um, you know, looking at those foreign policy advisors and looking at the, uh, you know, comments made by Joe Biden, that, you know, it will return to sort of longstanding policy. And therefore, I believe that, you know, obviously there's hope that, that tension um, might, you know, be diluted with more general support around uh, military assistance for Israel and um, sympathy for Israel. If I can just interject, though, I agree, Jacob, that you uh, would predict in a Biden White House, we would go back to a more traditional um, American uh, policy posture. But um, uh, the Trump administration has moved the Rubicon so radically. Israel has gotten so used to something so different in the past three and a half years that even though I agree that Biden will return it to quote unquote normal, Israelis are going to perceive it probably uh, in comparison to what they experienced with Trump as being quote unquote anti-Israel, hostile to Israel, uh, et cetera. So, uh, so we'll see. I, I, would, I, I would just I would just respond because we are Jews and we can debate. <laughs> I would just say that you know talking to policy experts and Israeli officials uh, on certain Trump policies, there's also um, you know some criticism, the underlying criticism where the UAE the UAE deal came on expense of annexation for Netanyahu's base. And we have the F-35 deal that we don't know, uh, you know, what the deal actually contains, but there's still criticism from Israeli officials. There was also recently criticism from an outgoing uh, Israeli general uh, about the U.S. withdrawal from the Iran deal. So it's not, you know, that universally uh, the Israel has gotten everything from Trump. Even the Trump peace plan came with uh, agreeing to a Palestinian state, which the Knesset didn't uh, um, vote on because uh, Netanyahu uh, was um, at the time an interim government and he didn't want to, he didn't want the right-wing parties to bolt uh, his right-wing bloc. So I do believe, again, while everybody loves, you know, to receive gifts, everybody wants to have the president's ear, I do believe that um, at core, what a majority of American Jews support, that is what we can continue to see in the next four years. Sure. Thank you. Uh, I, I'm just going to evoke some moderator privilege here and kind of jump in too. I mean, I, I think that this is a really interesting conversation, but what I worry that we're kind of talking around um, is that 
for a lot of American Jews and for a lot of political kind of people and voters in general, policy isn't nearly as much of a kind of moving, um, influential, persuasive force as I think maybe folks in the policy arena give it credit to. And, and I do think that whether or not Biden um, kind of returns to the mean uh, on terms of the average support for Israel, that there is real momentum in the Democratic Party uh, to go the other way. Uh, and I say this as a, as a progressive Jew, I've worked for a, a Democratic senator in the past, but, you know, there, as the kind of pushback on those that wield power, um, particularly unfairly in the eyes of some, becomes more and more at the center of the Jewish experience, I do think that there are a lot of young progressive Jews, um, Zionists, that are really struggling to figure out how where their home is in this conversation. Um, so I'm curious if anybody has any reactions to that. And uh, I know I also want to tee up a question uh, for Tabby related to this shortly after. I do have some thoughts on that, but I'll wait until you pose your question after because I might answer it All as right. part of that. Well, I'll just pose it now. So again, and, and this is a question from the audience. So thank you. Please keep submitting them. But as I was saying before, I think a lot of the tension that American progressive Jews are feeling is kind of living the stool experience of being people who feel the experience of having been persecuted in the past, um, and also feeling uh, the responsibility to end persecution of other people, often in this context in the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. Um, and I know a lot of progressive Jews have kind of struggled to kind of show up in solidarity, but also like raise their hand and point out that, uh, you know, we're in a discrete interest group too with, with things that we want to highlight and, and a story that we want to tell to the broader progressive social justice coalition. So do you have any kind of uh, uh, thoughts on that? Um, and that's, that's the way I wanted to push you there. You know, it's so interesting. I think, uh, coming from a community that was never given really access to civic action back in Iran and then being transplanted here in the U.S. It's one of the reasons I and um, uh, several dozen other young Persian Jews co-founded an organization called 30 Years After in 20, 2007. 30 Years After is a nonpartisan civic action organization that promotes the participation and leadership of Iranian-American Jews in three areas, civic life, American life, Jewish life. I don't think there's ever been a time where people like me, you know, in their 20s and 30s, especially, of any political affiliation, and I consider myself a moderate, were actively encouraged to participate in civic affairs, not as necessarily a birthright, a privilege, I guess, if you will call it, of the American people, but more as a way as a very dogmatic, existential, desperate way to stop some force that they think is destroying the country. Does that make sense? So you have, you know, again, refugee, immigrant, you know, Jewish communities like mine here in the U.S., particularly in, particularly in Southern California. I feel like before the 2016 election, Many of many younger members of our community are, are you know, progressives. Um, some of the older ones uh, tend to be a little bit more conservative because, again, they live the life, uh, you know, in, in, and they have very vivid memories of Iran, whereas the new generation was born here. Um, and as 
a co-founder and leader of, of, of a civic action movement for, for this community, I've been realizing and seeing more and more that up until 2016, we were becoming, uh, we were getting much more involved in, in civic action, you know, having voter registration drives, um, lobbying, uh, you know, policymakers at the local, you know, uh, congressional level and so on to really tell our stories make our, our, you know, the cliche is make your voices heard, but we had to make our voices heard because people didn't even know about us, right? Uh, to quote one of my uh, college roommates, there are Jews in Iran? Um, and then something happened uh, in the last three or four years, which is even, you know, members of my community who were getting their first taste of civic action. Really think about it. For the Ashkenazi Jews who are listening, think about your ancestors, your great grandmothers and so on, who were, whether they were walking for women's, you know, suffrage rights a hundred years ago or grandparents who were walking, you know, uh, for civil rights in the 60s. I mean, imagine refugee and immigrant communities that haven't, had ever, ever their first taste of civic affairs. And now we have a real problem on our hands because rather than encouraging us to um, tell our stories, our leaders, both nationally on a, on a lot on, on local levels, um, some, some of the, you know, uh, family members, media, of course, is actually encouraging us to get involved to stop someone else. You don't get involved necessarily to stop someone else, right? That is really, if you call low-hanging fruit, that's the baseline of what Americans, the blessing of American civic affairs should be like. And so um, I can tell you a little secret. That's not going to be such a secret anymore, which is among newly arrived immigrant communities like mine, Brandon, you're getting a lot of tension. You're getting a lot of tension because you have partly older generations like parents and grandparents. I'm talking grandparents who can remember where they were on May 14th, 1948, when Israel was declared. They, they were on a tra- listening to their transistor radio in cities all over Iran, right? You have people like my parents' generation. My dad in 1967 was a teenager in Tehran who ran away from home and my grandparents, God rest their souls, tracked them down at Tehran airport before he boarded the plane to try to join the IDF during the 67 war, right? This is some of the legacy that we've inherited. And then you get a new generation, the children of immigrants who are not so children anymore. They're in their 20s, 30s, and early 40s now. Domestic issues are mattering much more to them than ever before partly because like every American Jew, practically, they've also now started the assimilation process. They don't feel a connection as much maybe with the Jewish homeland, right? Um, They, you know, domestic issues are becoming more at the forefront for them. So you've got this tension and you've got over those Shabbat dinners that Persian Jews are famous for having every Friday night, God help you if you try to leave the house for a restaurant on Friday nights, even the most secular families won't, won't allow, you know, adult children to do it. And you have now my generation talking about LGBTQ issues with parents, um, many of whom don't understand. You have fathers and grandparents trying to lecture 
25-year-old grandchildren on the virtues of President Trump and, and, you know, citing what he's done, the way Allison, you know, was citing what Israelis have recognized, you know, everything from Golan to the embassy and so on. Um, Listen, at the end of the day, if... uh, At the end of the day... Israeli Jews and American Jews have to try and f- have to try to find ways to bypass a lot of the noise to hear each other. And by the way, that includes the Jews in here in the U.S. as well. When was the last time? I really want to know when was I, I was going to leave this for my concluding remarks. When was the last time that a uh, let's say not even progressive, let's say left of center? you know, Jewish congregation in West LA invited leaders from the, from Orthodox communities who were more on the conservative side to come and just speak, to shake hands, to break challah and to break bread and to just talk a little bit, right? When was the last time, let's say, an Iranian American Jewish, you know, organization or synagogue, um, you know, reached out. We're trying. We're really actually trying, but I'm a broken record when I tell you and all of the attendees, we're not listening to each other and we're not even seeking out that voice. And that is a greater disease of everything that's happening in our society, right down to social media and the echo chambers that we've created for ourselves. But you see, here's the one one thing Jews can't afford. Jews can't afford echo chambers. We can't afford echo chambers because if we deny ourselves what's happening in the Jewish world and in, uh, to Jews in other parts of the world, we leave ourselves at risk. Yeah, I, thank you for bringing that up. Uh, Jacob, we've actually had some folks in the audience kind of ask about this uh, divide between um, more religious communities in the United States versus the secular Jewish experience and also how that same dynamic intention is playing out in Israel. So given, given your background and certainly everything that you've been through over the past few weeks, I'm just wondering if you have any thoughts on this topic. Yeah, it's kind of interesting because uh, support for President Trump has, you know, I mean, has matched um, support for other um, Republican candidates in the past. Um, I think, if I'm not mistaken, Mitt Romney, John McCain um, got about the same support that President Trump got in 2016, you know, a little over and under. Um, But I do think that past that, past the election, uh, a lot of Orthodox Jews who generally are not really engaged um, in the political process, who do not really follow the news, Came very, became very engaged in the uh, political process in recent years. And that contributed to it, you know, politics and the divide becoming even more charged. Because when you see, for instance, um, you know, an uptick in neighborhoods that have a large Orthodox Jewish pop, um, population, and the mayor and governor who impose certain restrictions um, on the community are of democratic background 
or you know identify with the Democratic Party, you already see that clash. Um, add to that uh, Jews who are identified as Democrats would say, you know, these Orthodox Jews, you know, the reason why they don't follow certain um, guidelines, the reason why they sort of um, dismiss this as not a serious threat is because they see it from President Trump. Uh, they see, they watch President Trump uh, and they feel, you know, that they're just following the leader. Uh, and so that becomes already, you know, another issue um, of discussion, but it also adds to the tension between these two communities. So as, you know, as we shift from crisis to crisis, you'll always have a certain divide because religious Jews, uh, especially Orthodox, you know, not necessarily Hasidic Jews, you're talking about modern Orthodox as well, um, you know, are more conservative, um, identify more with the Republican Party uh, uh, compared to the rest of the American Jewish community who's generally support Democrats. So it's not necessarily um, a one issue uh, thing, it's on every level. It, on Israel, if it goes, you know, to Jewish values, Supreme Court, for instance, right? You have this uh, religious aspects to that. You have the abortion laws, um, Roe versus Wade, and, you know, um, marriage equality, uh, uh, and so forth. So I believe that in, you know, on almost every issue, you will find that divide between the more religious community and the rest of the American Jewish communities. Great, thank you. Um, we've also gotten a few questions about uh, the media's role in the election and how that is um, kind of informing uh, the understanding of politics for folks in Israel and maybe even in the United States too. So Allison, I'm wondering if you have any thoughts about the role that the media is playing in the relationship between um, Jews in America and Israel. Well, the media in, uh, you know, in both cases, it's sort of uh, amplifying this uh, uh, partisan divide that we're seeing, uh, that we're seeing on both sides. I wanted to build on something that, uh, that Jacob was talking about, and that's the, um, uh, you know, the end of bipartisan, uh, of Israel being a bipartisan issue and, 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 and the great divide even within the, the Jewish community. The, the very idea of Jewish values has now become a partisan issue. You know, what Jewish values are depends on which side of the political divide you are. And uh, um, uh, Tabby was talking about younger versus older generations. Um, older people slash you know, more religiously uh, traditional, the, the Orthodox people. And I would say to a large extent, Israelis, just because of the concept Israeli is built on, Jewish values are community-oriented, they're um, tribal, they're, uh, the, the word that, word that Daniel Gordas uses is particularist, um, but tribal is a very good good word for it. And, uh, and being Jewish is about um, your place in the Jewish world and building the Jewish world and advocating for the Jewish world. 
and um, uh, American Jews have redefined Jewish values, especially in the younger, more progressive, and more non-Orthodox sphere of being universalist and looking out for the downtrodden and and look in solidarity with the with the greater community. So, uh, so you're you're looking at that divide Um, on the issue of media. I think really the story these days is more social media because social media is now how most people consume their uh, their mainstream media and um, we used to share the same outlets and now everyone's living in their echo chamber and in their bubble and and, and reading you know either Haaretz or the Jerusalem Post or just like they read you know the the New York Times or Breitbart News so um, uh, the media has now become part of the story of uh, partisanship uh, and division and uh, you have uh, you have not only opposing views, but you've got opposing truths and opposing facts. Thank you. Uh, we've also gotten a few questions from folks on anti-Semitism um, coming from both sides. You know, there, I've, I've seen some comments and some Q&A stuff about the kind of emboldenment of white nationalism under the Trump administration and, and how that might link to some of the, the violent acts that we've seen taken against Jews and, and chanted against Jews. But we've also seen, and, and Jacob's even spoken about, the increasing comfort of, of some on the left to speak in anti-Semitic tropes and kind of the difficulty of really parsing the difference between criticism of Israel and uh you know, criticism of, of Jewish people and the legitimacy of Israel. So I'm, I'm curious how, I'm curious of the effect that our polarization and partisan divide have on how anti-Semitism is experienced and what the common experience of anti-Semitism might mean in the context of, a, of this kind of fraying Jewish community we've spoken about. So I will leave that open to whoever wants to answer it first. Um, I'll start. Um, and that's, you know, it's the ultimate whataboutism. And uh, I've, I've been writing about this now for years. Uh, everyone says the other side's anti-Semites are worse than, the, than their side's anti-Semites. The moment you ask somebody on the right about white nationalists, they'll come back with, uh, you know, Ilan uh, uh, Omar or, uh, or somebody, uh, Mark Lamont Hill or, or some sort of uh, the Women's March people. Uh, they'll come back with that. And the moment that you, uh, that you ask the same question to, uh, to someone on the left about anti-Semitism on the left, they'll start saying how much worse white nationalism is. It really weakens, I think, the Jewish community in, in fighting anti-Semitism when it becomes a partisan issue and, uh, and only, people only want to see half of the problem. We need to unite together to, to attack the, the problem as a community. That said, we can't deny that the, the, uh, the vast, vast, vast majority of actual physical violent um, activities has come from one side of that equation, and that is the, the white nationalist side, which is an actual physical threat to, uh, to Jews, just as it is to the rest of the community. There's no equal, you know, there's, there's no both sides on that in terms of where the violence is coming from. Great. Thank you. Um, one more question. I, I want to 
tie together from a, a few of the different comments we've had. You know, a big a big theme that we've been speaking about today is, is kind of the different experiences Jews have, uh, whether it's, you know, some of the discrete communities Tavi was speaking about, whether it's the Israeli community, the religious community. And I think this moment in time has been a real reawakening about the diversity that we have in the Jewish community. But, you know, that diversity isn't everywhere. We, we've gotten a question, for instance, that kind of said, I, I don't know the statistics of whether this is true or not, but, you know, in that person's own experience living in a Midwestern town, Jewish community, it tends to be very Ashkenazi and kind of what you would uh, think of for rightly or wrongly as being a kind of default experience. So I, I want to push us a little bit further to think about this question. When polarization is not coming necessarily from within the Jewish community. And what I mean by that is the polarizing forces in our society, as we said, are social media, are geographic clustering, are the, the instincts and the messages that we're getting from leadership, the political calculations about you know, uniting the right sides and the left sides across the ocean. So when polarizing is really an external force, how do we, as the Jewish community, build a more inclusive Jewish community that might be able to overcome some of these polarizing factors and leave us in a, in a more united relationship? And I, and I would like everybody to weigh in on this. And Jacob, you, you were nodding, so I'm going to start with you. I would, I would say that we have to unite around um, common issues okay um and so you know while we may disagree on certain you know policy initiatives on certain issues we can always find uh something that we can rally around um, i mean i would point to when you know during the the israeli uh, military campaign in gaza in 2014 where mostly American Jews rallied to support Israel because Israel was uh, being bombarded by missiles uh, from Gaza. Um, there are so, you know, some events that contribute to that, obviously. Uh, we don't want to see uh, Israel uh, being targeted by terrorist groups in order for us to come together and support the Jewish state. But as I mentioned uh, before, uh, there are some you know, uh, issues when it comes to, uh, for instance, I would just point to number one, support for Israel, where we can both agree that we want a peaceful Middle East, but also that military support for Israel um, has to remain uh, bipartisan uh, on, on, you know, and um, unconditional. Uh, there, there are other issues. Uh, if I point back to anti-Semitism. That's the same thing. Uh, the Jewish community, uh, all communities, or I'm specifically, we're talking to a Jewish audience, the Jewish community can come together and say, we speak out in a loud voice to condemn um, hate uh, from both sides of the aisle. Um, we won't support fringe candidates on the far left, and we won't support French candidates, white nationalists running on a Republican slate. Uh, that is something that we can 
all agree on. And, you know, you see sometimes moments um, where uh, both sides come together uh, and, you know, support each other. Uh, I thought that during COVID that that will be the case, uh, that we all understand that we have uh, a collective uh, responsibility to, number one, save lives and together bring down the infection rate so it doesn't, you know, harm uh, those vulnerable uh, people. But unfortunately, we are in election season and, you know, uh, we are seeing misinformation spread from other, from some sides. So that already, you know, contributes to the political divide. But I'm hopeful that we can find um, common ground on certain issues and that should, uh, I mean, we should be united on almost every issue. Uh, you'll never find um, American Jews or Jews in general, uh, even in a family, uh, agree on everything. So Jacob is not gonna like my response, but I am not hopeful and I think things will get much worse. I just do not see some of even conversations about unity, forget unity itself, conversations about unity happening right now. And I'll tell you why. Um, in the US, Democratic and Republican Jews are each turning a blind eye to the anti-Semitism um, emanating from their parties or emanating from some from you know their, their elected officials as we've seen on, on the hard left in the US or uh, from elected officials on the right and supporters as well in the street. Um, you know, when uh, a mother of, a young mother, she was maybe 31 or 32, and um, a customer who I believe was a yeshiva student and a worker who was an immigrant were gunned down in the New Jersey sh city shooting by members of the black Israelites, I was waiting. I was waiting for my friends on the left to um, condemn it, to say, you know, something. Can I be honest with you? Most of them didn't even know that it had occurred, right? Most of them don't follow, you know, anti-Semitism, even when it's happening in on the East Coast. Um, most of them didn't want to address the issue of race because it involved an, uh, uh, two people who self-identified with the black Israelites who even the, you know, um, most American experts will tell you are, are just hideous. Uh, we're really turning a blind, blind eye to a lot of these things. And um, I think at this point, to be honest with you, on both sides, we'll do anything to get our candidates elected, both to, you know, the House and the Senate and to um, president. And uh, I just don't see this forget getting better. I see this really getting worse. Um, because, uh, because of the environment that's been cultivated, you know, in the last um, three or four years, I really hate to leave on such a on, on such a, you know, bitter, sour note. But I'm, I'm speaking from both observation and a lot of personal experience. Um, decades old friendships, you know, destroyed over issues like this. Parents and children at each other's throats. Um, 
truly, I think it was the Prophet Elijah who said, you know, your enemies will come from within. And uh, that doesn't mean that some Jew will come and tear the Jewish world apart, you know. Um, that doesn't mean Noam Chomsky will come and steal the debate. It really means that the Jewish uh, draw towards dissent eventually leads to disintegration of that unity. Um, I really hope that I'm proven wrong. Well, I guess I'll do the optimistic thing then, so because we don't want to uh, end on a pessimistic note. Yes, uh, please. I think that actually, you know, Jacob, you're uniquely qualified to unify the Jewish people because you performed this miracle this week of having the Republican Jewish coalition and, uh, and the, the Democratic uh, Jewish uh, Council get together. Their heads have been, the leaders of these organizations have been fighting you know, tooth and nail, really bashing each other for, the, for months and months, and all of a sudden they came together and issued a joint statement supporting Jacob. So, Jacob, you might be the man who can, uh, who can bring us all together. <laughs> um, but, uh, you know, I, I'm, I'm not so pessimistic. I agree that uh, we always do best when our enemies come from without and we tear ourselves up from within. That's what we always say in Israel, which is in the Jewish state. Um, Israel, uh, you know, Americans don't have much bandwidth to follow Israeli politics right now. But there is, you know, because of disappointment for the way of the way that the Israeli leadership has uh, navigated Israel through the uh, COVID-19 crisis, there's a real taking back of power by people, you know, on the streets. There's an amazing protest movement to an extent was inspired, I think, by watching what was going on in the U.S. Uh, uh, with, the, with the protests against um, uh, against police brutality. There's also a big movement against police brutality uh, um, in Israel. And I really think that uh, if you, you, know, you look at what a tiny minority are in the United States, you know, despite the fact that they're so visible and so vocal, and the fact uh, that Israel is so small, and you look at us, we're you know, a drop in the ocean of the world population, um, there's no other choice but to try to uh, reach out and, uh, and, and, and fight for some kind of unity. And I think we have to look for and towards leadership that is alternative to politicians because the political parties are always going to profit on divisiveness and on pitting one side against the other. So I don't know if it's rabbinical leadership or other community leadership, but um, uh, there has to be active reaching out to people who we don't necessarily agree with, but as fellow Jews do something to uh, pull the community together. And uh, as much as I'm a journalist and I also sort of profit off of one side, you know, versus another and, 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 uh, going against the other. That's also something the, the media has to, in the Jewish and Israeli world, also has to look towards is finding the point of, um, of, uh, of reconciliation and, and harmony and, and reconciling um, our tribal Jewish values with our universal making the world better place uh, tikkun olam. Thank you uh, to all of our panelists and, and thank you, Allison, for wrapping up on that possible optimistic note. Uh, I want to kick it quickly to Alex Letterman, who is with staff uh, for IPF, to bring us home. I thank you. Uh, my name is uh, Alex Letterman, and I am the IPF Atib National Organizing Fellow here at Israel Policy Forum. Uh, I'll quickly share some final announcements before we leave here today. Uh, thank you to everyone for joining us for this very engaging discussion. And I also would like to give a special thanks to Allison, Jacob, and Tabby for sharing their insights with us 
and for Brandon for moderating and representing our Atheid Young Professional Network here. Uh, if you haven't already, you can follow IPF Atheid on Instagram and join our Facebook group. And be sure to check out Israel Policy Forum's resources and initiatives, including our weekly COPLO column and Annexation Watch, uh, which is our page where we monitor efforts to promote annexation of the West Bank. I just sent these things uh, in the links for these things in the chat, so be sure to check them out. And as we mentioned, the recording of this event will be sent out shortly for further sharing. Thanks again for joining us today, and we hope you enjoy the rest of your evening.